0: You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 8, Episode 18. In essence, nothing. Deal Memo, 1968. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Check, Larry Nemacek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Hey, especially you Star Trek historians, you writing fans. I mean, you truck a spelled with an F. All of you, we've got a special show today. We're going back to the original series, Days, uh, to one of the writers from one of the classic Star Trek episodes that keeps coming up over and over again. So look, let's just dive in. Go check out our page at Facebook, Facebook.com slash Files. As always, the document is there, but take a look. Here's a listen. Here's an audio sample, Uh, and then I'll be right back with this week's special guest. Judy Burns and Chet Richards have turned in their final draft teleplay entitled, In Essence, Nothing, a Star Trek ST-108. Please pay them accordingly. Fred Freiberger. Well, if you hear the name Fred Freiberger, Star Trek fans, and your original series attuned at all, then you know we are talking about the original series and we're talking about the third season, which takes its share of dings over the years. But there's one, there's a handful of episodes of the third season that have always stood the test of time as classics. It was an instant classic. Uh, and The Tholian Web is certainly one of them. And I am so thrilled to have the writer of The Tholian Web with us today, Judy Burns. Judy, it is so great to have you with us today on The Trek Files. What, it, what comes to mind? I want to talk about your background because you were a young writer. I want, to, I want to hear all about the origin of the show. But what comes to mind when you, when you see this deal memo?
1: Synchronicity comes to mind. All of the elements that had to come together to make this happen. And it's really interesting because it's about a half a dozen. I was originally at UC Irvine. I was tutoring Buddy Ebsen's children in mathematics. Wow. So I was teaching them algebra. At the same time, I fell in love with Star Trek about a season or two before and decided that it was a fascinating show. I wanted to go to Africa to dig bones. And I needed money to get there because Louis Leakey was not going to pay my way over. It was Mm $2,500. I called up Star Trek and said, how much do you get for writing one of these? And they said (laughs) $2,500. So I decided to write a Star Trek to get to Africa. So I had an idea, wrote it. It went in the toilet. But what happens is Buddy Epson got me to Tom Blackburn, who wrote Fess Parker, um, the Fess Parker series, David Crockett. Oh, okay. Okay, so writers never do this. They never write other, read other writers' material, but Tom read it. He called his agent, Polly Connell, who was a Walt Disney story editor who became an agent. She said, I'll take you on. She basically got it in, and then I decided I needed to know how to write. So <laughs> Bob, Bob Duncan was, was having a class at UC Irvine, an extension, and I went to Bob Duncan, and I was so poor, I didn't even have the money to take the class. He read some of the script and said, sit down and don't say anything. And so I did, and by the second quarter, I had enough money to pay for the class. By the third quarter, I'd finished the script along with Chet. And Bob Duncan knew Freddie Freiburger. The first script I said that we turned in had gone in the toilet. Uh-huh. So he called Freddie Freiberger to see when, if. When you
0: say you say first script, first version of this, or a completely well, different story?
1: There was another script with another co-writer. That one, obviously, they hated, and I now know why.
0: <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> well, that's good.
1: So he called Freddie Freiberger to see if this script was in the toilet, in the wastebasket. Freddie Freiberger picked up the script, handed it to Bobby Justman. Bobby Justman wrote it. Three days later, we had a meeting. So that's a lot of. Wow. Steps to get to this sale. And what was the first one about? The first one was about a planet um, that we came to where we ended up in a series of horrific incidents. I'll call it that. Like we will come up on a scenario and be trapped in that scenario and not know what the heck's going on. At the same time, McCoy ends up kind of like the empath with one person from this planet but it turns out this planet is a museum and all of these things are part of their past. They're Mm. not real people. They're synthoids, whatever you want to call them. And, um, you know, it just didn't have a forward plot line except for the McCoy story. It was all coincidental. And, you know, I knew nothing about writing. I was not a writer. I was an anthropologist. Yeah. So I wouldn't have known by the time I got to the second script, I got to Bob Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, of course, it made a giant difference in how that script turned out by the end.
0: Well, you had yeah. that you had that people chain that ended with Fred Freiberger, but was that intentional, or was it just totally coincidental synergy? Uh, Co- yeah.
1: Synchronicity.
0: Yeah, synchronicity. Coincidental.
1: coincidental. From, from Buddy Epson down to Freddie Freiberger.
0: That's just amazing, because you weren't on a writing track. You weren't burning and dying to be a writer. You were trying to no. be an anthropologist, sounds like.
1: I'm trying to get to Nairobi. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had to get to Nairobi through the thinking. Tholian interface. Yeah.
1: Well there, There's one more piece of that. It was, I was up in L.A. the year before trying to date bones and learn how to date bones at um, the museum in L.A., and I just got to burr up my backside to go over to Paramount and get a script so I would know what it looked look like. So I went to the front gate at uh, the Melrose Gate. Anyway, I went up and the guard said, who are you? And I said, um, I talked to somebody at Star Trek called Penny Unger. And I would like a script, please. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. He called at, the <laughs> at the gate. At the gate. He called Penny Unger and she said, well, we're not, I heard her. We're not shooting so she can't touch any little green ears. So let her in. So I came in and she gave me a couple of scripts, one by D.C. Fontana and the Bible, and said, go away and sin no more, basically. And I went back home and took that script apart as if it was a Mm -hmm. block with pieces. Or as if you were excavating bones. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And decided how to write a script. Like I said, the first one that I did, however, was pretty terrible. (laughs) But the second one was interesting.
0: So, well, I what... would say so. And, and what you and the difference between the first and second script was what you were absorbing in your class that you paid for eventually.
1: Yeah, I think so. Also, basically, I really started to look at how the shows were built from the time the first one was written to the time the second one. The other thing that I did was I had a four track player in my own metro car as I was going back and forth to the university. And I would take those shows, those audio, and I would listen to the school on back. Yeah. So I would hear the plot. And it made a lot of difference.
0: Well, where did the, I mean, all the stories from when first submitted, you wound up with your name on the, uh, on the script, which is doing good for, my gosh, for a first time writer. Where did, the, where did the idea come from?
1: I, um, I wanted to tell a ghost story. And I, I had a friend, Chet, who was not even in the same part of the school. And I was talking to him one day and said, I really want to write a ghost story. And I need to find a way to make a two-dimensional character look like a ghost on a ship. You know, got any ideas? And he went, well, blah, 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 blah. And then he said, we can gobbledygook it and say that they're in some other kind of dimension. And it kind of, the dimensions overlap. Mm-hmm. He said, that's not really anything that's science. But he said that, you know, let's just take it that way. So I ended up sitting with Chet and coming up with the story. And the story originally had Spock running around, being the one that was the ghost. But when we got there, they said, well, we already have Spock's brain. Mm -hmm. So let's not do that. And besides, they said in the memo, I got um, Bobby Justman's memo on the thing. Mm -hmm. And he said, Kirk is such a schmuck, he'd want to be the one to stick behind stay behind.
0: <laughs> the so, hero. yeah,
1: yes, the hero. So I talked to buddy Bobby Adjustment many, many years later, you know, he would come to my class and talk about mm-hmm. screenwriting. And um, he said, you were never supposed to get that memo ever. But the memo was really, um, it was a those, those, those
0: script notes are meant for the staff, not for the original writer, if they're out of the... Yeah, yeah right.
1: Bernie Freiberger sent it on to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason he sent it on, I know, is because Bobby basically laid out a big chunk of story. Mm-hmm. God bless him. And um, we followed that story. And then, of course, we got to the wonderful Arthur Singer. Arthur Singer needs to be praised up one side and down the other because he was an old fashioned story editor and there's a difference between story editors now and story editors then story editors then wanted the writer to write the script they wanted to help the writer write the script mm-hmm. not do it themselves and so he basically stuck with us ultimately me because Chet had Chet's a wonderful person but Chet tried to tell them what to do Instead of them telling Chet what to do. Mm-hmm. And so they basically said, if you want to keep this script, you know, please just come in yourself and bring your guy, you guys' notes in to us and we'll send them back. to you." Right. We want to talk to one person. What that finally did was basically
0: cause me just to write this stuff. So I just sat down and wrote what they wanted. Well, did Chet go on to be a writer? No. Okay. No. Well, it's amazing that the two of you are even there at this stage anyway, because lots of people who study and study and work and work and work to be writers who don't care about getting to Kenya, <laughs> to Nairobi, uh, they, have, they never get as far as you did. So this is a, it's an amazing story.
1: Well, I think the big difference is that once I did it and once um, I had the feeling of the word under my fingers, um, I immediately tried to decide how to write another one. And I knew that I couldn't write a Star Trek instantly because they were already doing their thing. So I decided to write a mission impossible, which was really kind of up my mental mm-hmm. path, I guess. I, you know, I was always into physics and into math and into science in school, even though I ended up in anthropology. And so that thing taking things apart like clockwork worked with mission. Mm-hmm. So Chad and I had started the mission together. And that was probably two months before the Star Trek sold. And by the time the Star Trek got sold, I was three quarters of the way through revising that script without Chet. And I got a call from upstairs in the same building. It turned out that mission was right upstairs from Star Trek. Right. They're both lazy Lou. And they said, who wrote this? You know, did you write all of it? Did he write all of it? Who wrote what? Well, I rewrote the first three and I didn't write the last one because I didn't know how. I didn't know how to fix it. Mm-hmm. So I just turned it in the way it was and hoped that somebody would see the writing. And they said, okay, well, we like the first three. We hate the last one, which was chats. <laughs> well, you're hired. <laughs> so suddenly I'm a writer. <laughs> That's so for the next nine months... Yep. I sat around Mission Impossible learning stuff. And Star Trek was still downstairs and they were dismantling. And of course.
0: Yeah, this is late Leonard, in the show. Yeah.
1: Came right upstairs and I said, Hi, Leonard. <laughs> he came up, came up while I was there. <laughs> it was really fascinating. Well, you and did then, have. You, go ahead. Well, I was going to say then. I got kitchen cabinet out. They changed everybody over at Mission, except for the couple of three top people. Goodbye, Judy. Oh, I wasn't that good anyway. And for the next two years, I couldn't get a job in town. And the really interesting thing is that the Times called me, and they wanted to write an article on has-been, so I'm flashing the pans. <laughs> and I was working in a little newspaper with friends. And I said, I don't think I'm a has-been. No, I'm not going to do your article. And about two months later, I had a chance to go on search with Bobby Justman. Mm
0: -hmm. The series search. The series search. I wrote two of those, and then, well, just, it took off. Well, that's great. That is great. Listen, uh, we are we we need to wrap it up, but I want to talk to you some more because I we we were looking through the files and found some other Judy Burns related material here. So I would um, I'd love to have you back and and just focus on that because it was not you. You went on and did anthropology, but it was not quite the end of your writing adventures. Could you come back and join us for another show? Sure. Okay, Judy, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun and I'm going to look forward to that return visit. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your chance to comment, of course, are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47, that's me, at larrynemachek.com. That's where you can also link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody.